Welcome to the FPA Business Before Technology podcast, where our goal is to provide small business owners and key decision makers with valuable nuggets to help you grow or simply improve how you run your business, ultimately looking to increase your profitability. My name is Craig Pollock. I'm the founder and CEO of FPA Technology Services, and I'm your host for this podcast. Do you ever wonder what other business owners are running up against out there? Are you too busy working in your business to work on your business? Do you ever feel like you're in this thing alone? Are you at a crossroad with your business where some new ideas would help? For nearly 30 years, I've been helping companies grow and improve their businesses by leveraging technology. Whether it's software, hardware, on-prem, or in the cloud, and at the same time, building FPA into the premier IT service provider in the greater Los Angeles area. This experience has given me exposure to hundreds of businesses and all sorts of systems, and as a lifelong learner, has helped me gather all I could about the ins and outs of running a business. And these are the sorts of things I want to share with you on this podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest today. His name is Jason Beck, and he's a consultant with Potential Project, who just completed his PhD in positive organizational psychology from the Claremont McKenna College. He has some great insight into what makes people tick these days and how things like attention, focus, and mindfulness can all help with improving leadership and ultimately individual performance. In addition, there's a great section where we compare and contrast how we go about being organized in today's hectic world. All great stuff. So here we go. Here's my conversation with Jason. Great. Welcome, Jason, back to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. All right. So for those of you who don't know, Jason is a consultant with a potential project. They're a, you can probably tell us better what they do, but it's related to leadership, mindfulness, organizational behavior, psychology of business, psychology of knowledge workers, attention, focus, all sorts of really great concepts around the mind. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing there, what this is about, and how this ultimately, you know, how this might help some of our, our listeners, um, small business owners, those sorts of things. Generally, the main aim of this consulting firm is to help the workplace with the mind. So everything we do comes back to the mind. So we work with implementing training programs, like a five to 10 week training program once a week. A facilitator comes in, delivers a one hour training session that's a mix of lecture content, activities, debrief discussions, all about the mind. So some things are about joy and kindness and compassion in a collaborative way. And then sometimes it's more about resilience, stress, how to manage stress, how to manage obstacles to figure out new ways to get around obstacles in life. And again, coming back to the mind and how does the mind operate from a neuroscience point of view and leveraging principles around mindfulness, the ability to be present with the moment uh, non-judgmentally accepting it and how that relates to many different performance metrics and business success. So this is like in, in general, really interesting concepts. And it's, it's really an interesting thought process around mindfulness, attention, all of those sorts of concepts. Um, we just had, you know, thank you very much. We had a really great presentation that you put together for our team. Um, I think we had a lot of involvement, a lot of questions, really, really interesting thought process watching people react to something as simple as taking three minutes and just stopping and listening to your breathing. Something that I thought, you know, as the leader of a technology company, we'd get a, a, a ton of pushback from. And with technology 
people who are, you know, about the tasks, about getting the job done, but at the same time, how much they could appreciate what three minutes of silence sort of refocused them and got them back to a, you know, sort of a centered place. And I thought that that was really interesting because I never really thought about it in those terms and thought what that would do. So I'm wondering what your take was on, you know, how the presentation went and and some, again, feedback from people that are, you know, technical staff that are doers and not in a negative way, but not, you know, like you said, mindfulness sort of has this, this, this baggage that it's all about crunchy granola and hippie speak. Right. And, and so like, I think what would be interesting is talking about how it's not that. And also how, how does this really help businesses? Right. Just this concept. So just a couple minutes, the thoughts on, you know, the presentation and the feedback that you got. I thought it went really well because when I do explain these concepts, it complements the fast-paced work that we live in today. The knowledge economy of how do we problem-solve these complex issues in tons of different variables that some of them we can manage, some of them we can't, all using our attention. Mindfulness being... A, a training as like a mindfulness meditation that we practice today where we sit down calmly focusing our breath and watching the distractions go off and then our ability to come back to our breath and practicing that over and over again. Now that same principle can be applied off the chair or what they say sometimes off the cushion in which anything you're doing, you can be working and choosing a task at hand, a distraction comes up, even a simple urge to check email on the phone or Instagram or what have you, and then acknowledging the distraction and coming back to whatever you chose as your anchor of attention. That by itself strengthens the muscle of quote-unquote mindfulness, the ability to just direct your attention to what you want it to be. What's the meaningfulness? What's the result? What's the end result and benefit of, of this concept of being aware? Of, of your attention, of your focus, you know, mindfulness, so to speak. What's the benefit of that? I like to think of it as shooting an arrow. So you can pull back the bow. And the farther you pull back, the greater strength you have to shoot it forward. And having that attitude or an intention of mindfulness in which I'm becoming aware of what's happening in front of me, non-judgmentally, not acting so quickly, allows me to have greater performance. They're couple, they complement each other. Uh, not to say that we should always be going slow through our tasks, but stepping outside of action addiction for a few moments helps to ground us to know how we are feeling. How am I feeling right now truly? How are you feeling in front of me? And just knowing where we are at before we collaborate can benefit. Now, that's in a relational point of view. The more information we have, the better options we have at our disposal and the better result we can get. Too often, we are at the whim of our, dis- of our distractions and are hijacked by all the noise around us. What good is it if I have tons of excellent creative ideas, yet the one, I, the one option I choose is dictated by being distracted by my phone and whatever is easiest, quickest to get me out of the discomfort of not winning right now or not succeeding or a problem comes up. I feel stress. I need to get rid of stress. Let me go with the first option that gets us out versus sitting for a second, still becoming aware of what do I have access to? What can we do? What is working versus being distracted by who's to blame? Fear-centered questions. 
that are dictated not on mindfulness, but just on survival mechanisms. Right. And all of this is, I would think, you know, nowadays, and we've had these conversations offline here, just how life is different now with the internet, with our phones, with multitasking, how we're being sucked in so many different directions and our brains are being refocused from from a, a time where we could focus on a task for a long time and we were comfortable with that and we were good with that and our brains love that to now where as much as we want to be focused, our brains don't even want to be focused because we've retrained them not to be. And so we're getting dopamine hits every time we're looking at something just for the satisfaction of looking at it and not the end result. The interesting thing that I, that, that I took away or one of the interesting things from your presentation was uh, that survey you talked about and how, you know, nearly 50% of the time people aren't thinking about what they're doing at that time. So is, is that the world we live in now that, you know, half the time we're not even thinking about what we're doing and, and how, how good can we be at what we're doing if we're not thinking about what we're doing at the time we're doing it? How good are we and how happy are we? On top of that study, which a quick summary is just you get pinged on your cell phone randomly every two hours throughout the day and then after a week they compile all this data from tons of participants of what were they doing at the time of the beep and what were they thinking about nearly half the time people are thinking about something other than they're doing what good is that if we're not thinking about what we're doing whether it's with somebody that we care about or the work that we like want to achieve successfully in and creative but they also measured happiness and they found those times when our mind is wandering from the activity that we're doing, we're less happy. Yeah, that's, and I think that that's probably the most difficult thing to deal with these days is how do we increase our happiness? We're supposed to have all these tools and, right, it's the, it's the best time to be alive, arguably. There, there, there's so much flexibility, so much productivity. I mean, we have every bit of information at our fingertips. Yeah, right? I should be happy. Right, I should be happy. And, <laughs> and yet, you know, we're all, we're all sort of battling with that. So let's come back to that because I think these are all fantastic concepts. What I would like to talk about real quickly is really about you. Like, how did you get into this? How did you end up in this place of where you're at? Because mindfulness, the psychology and knowledge workers, organizational behavior, these are all incredibly interesting concepts and they're all really what I think are really timely and important concepts and sort of the evolution of business to where it's grown to at this point in time. How does, how does a young kid like you get into something like this, which is such a, it's, it's sort of a, a cross between karma, karmic sort of viewpoint, like the, the grunchy, you know, the, the earthy, crunchy granola sort of view, living in a teepee off the grid and, you know, Cisco it's good rent. That's and, why I do that. That's good rent. There you go. <laughs> but how did you, how did you get into that? And what's what's your history around this stuff? I think it probably started from playing baseball, which people call it, you know, a thinking person sport. There's so much off time in the sport. It's quite. Some people say it's boring. And I think it because it fascinated me that there's more failure in baseball than there is success. It becomes a mind game to how do I deal with failure. And then I think it just came out wider to, okay, well, life has more seemingly failures than successes at times. Uh, um, most major philosophical traditions will say that life is suffering and how do we deal with it? Wrestling with a lot of these ideas probably drove me to study psychology as an undergraduate. And I became fascinated with the discipline of positive psychology, which is 
more new. I mean, most psychology that we know of and that's influenced so many books has been researching what goes wrong with life and how do we fix it. And a lot of the research is people who have mental illnesses. And a newer tradition that came out uh, in the late 90s is about, okay, well, what goes right in life? Let's study the best of life and how do we keep doing that? How do we get people from zero to five instead of just negative 10 back to baseline? And I came across the concept of flow, which is being totally immersed in the moment. And I was like, that, I love that. It's not necessarily a joyful, exuberant, happy with a smile glued to our face or a passive aggressive smile. You know, everything's fine. It's more of like being completely immersed. And the research from that is quite clear that people who experience more flow in life have are flourishing. And I experienced that by playing baseball. I've experienced that doing pottery. Um, and the research from that comes from rock climbing, from painting, from all these different types of activities all have this flow experience. And so I got fascinated with that. And that led me to want to go into a doctoral program to understand how we can apply a lot of those principles to the workplace. And I've always had a little bit of a interest in Eastern philosophy, not from a religious standpoint, but just to understand the full breadth of different ways people examine life. And that came across Buddhism and Taoism and all these different concepts. And that's when I found mindfulness. Right now you're you're finishing up your doctorate program, correct? Yeah. And you're currently at Claremont? Claremont Graduate University. Okay. Yeah. And so how did you end up how do you end up there? Like what was what was so special about that program that made you say, yeah, that's the place that I want to take this to the next level? That is the one of the only two, or at the time was one of the only two graduate programs for positive psychology. Uh, the founder, one of the founders of positive psychology, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. Do not try Googling that name <laughs> after hearing it. It's quite difficult to spell. It starts with a C, though. He termed flow. So when people say getting into the zone during sports, he termed the, the word flow, which is the same concept. Right. And so I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. I'm going to go there. Well, that's pretty interesting. So what, what's your experience been like there so far? It, le it led to the position that you're currently at, contacts, those sorts of things. I mean, give us a little bit of background of, of sort of your day-to-day -day there. Yeah, so I started as a master's student and went through organizational psychology. It's workplace, motivation, goal setting, teamwork, leadership, that kind of bit. And when I was there, I did a few research projects just on mindfulness, which is still at the time was a new concept and people didn't really want to be part of it because it has that woo-woo mm -hmm. kind of feel to right. it. The granola set. The granola the set. It says yeah. so there'll be the lingo going forward on this podcast, the mm -hmm. granola. <laughs> and I became kind of the mindfulness guy on campus. And luckily there was another professor there in a business school who worked underneath Peter Drucker, who's a major business guru of sorts. Oh, yeah. yeah. So he was a disciple. Of sorts. Of sorts, kind of. <laughs> okay. And he worked underneath Peter Drucker, and his specialty is mindfulness. And we've had a couple chats, and I've now since become a sort of an apprentice of his in a way. And he introduced me to Potential Project when they needed a research study done. And that's how I got introduced and now doing consulting for them, but also I'm head of researching how the program works. Right. And so the leader uh, of Potential Project, he, he's the one who wrote The Mind of the Leader, a really, really great leadership book around how to incorporate leadership with a mindfulness 
approach, correct? So what I found really interesting uh, from the book, one of the quotes was 77% of leaders think they do a good job of engaging their people, yet 88% of employees say their leaders don't engage enough. Like how diametrically opposed are those two statistics? And what does that mean if you're if you're one of those businesses, right? How are we right to to get the most out of our staff? It's all about engagement, correct? Yeah, I that's, mean, it I mean that's called there. Johari's window, which is a concept from self awareness in psychology that people do three sixties to try to figure out what do I don't know about myself that other people do know. Johari's window. I don't know who Johari is, but that's where it <laughs> but came from. he has a from. really important window. It's a very, very <laughs> vital window. And that 360 is, is being that I'm going to measure you on some concepts. And I'm going to ask your team members, what do they think about you on the same ones? Are you over or underrating yourself on those competencies? Or do you know exactly who you are and you're the same as your, your other members? Now, that's still limited because now you're – now you're rating yourself against other people's perceptions, which is still good, but they're limited too. They have all sorts of biases and histories impacting that. And that comes back to why we focus on the mind is because we get in, we get so much information through our brain, but we distill and choose what we want to look at, right? Whenever, when I walk into this room right now, you have a big bookshelf, but I only see one book that caught my eye was John Wooden. Because I play a lot of sports, and so that's probably why I looked at it. And there's tons of other books that I did not even look at. Why is that? Because of my past. Although you probably, you know, uh, I think a scientist would argue or a neurologist would argue that you've seen them all. Yeah. But your brain picked up on the consciously, one, right? And what mindfulness can do is help us not be so quick to be led by our association patterns. Break out of the habitual norms in work, in relationships, and be free of that so that you can know what you're doing and and not fall trapped to some things that hold you back. So would you say almost the starting point then is kind of awareness? Like you need yeah. to be aware that you're not aware. Yep. And that's why sometimes <laughs> right. from mindfulness training programs, people report that they're more stressed because they're aware of the stress that they had didn't realize that they had stress and that's what was causing whatever negative sleep issues right going to bed you know whatever yeah exactly right well that's incredibly incredibly interesting what what are some of the challenges you've seen implementing this like getting people to buy in have you run across that or like is is the client base of potential project organizations that already bought in so so delivering it makes it easier as opposed to I know we need to improve. We need to engage our, our staff more. How do we go about it? Well, let's talk about mindfulness. Eh, I don't need any of that granola stuff. Yeah. Like I, I need something real. What's, you know, what have you seen out there in terms of adopting this and what sort of companies are you working with that, that are looking to improve their engagement through this? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great point. What are the challenges? And I was actually surprised to see with the clients we work with, how buying in isn't the issue. Cool. Companies buy in. It's big now. You know, there are multiple competitors or co co creators is what we like to call them in our industry. And there are companies like Google, Accenture, Cisco, Lego, Microsoft, these big companies that are utilizing trainings like this. And for me, the biggest issue, twofold, time and culture. How am I supposed to have my employees 
be spending 10 to 20 minutes meditating every day? How do I spend five minutes at the start of a meeting to do this, to ground us before we head into the practice of agenda setting and goal setting, all this stuff, when we barely have the time to meet in the first place? Um, that's and that's probably the biggest roadblock. Mm-hmm. And I, I would argue that comes back to awareness, right? Their awareness that sometimes you have to go slow to go fast, right? Everybody wants to get things done. And so every second that you're not getting something done, you feel like you're not moving the ball yeah, forward. You're wasting it was what a comment was today. Yeah, I'm right. wasting this moment. Um, and that comes to another concept that we can't manage time. Time management was a huge thing that blew up in the 2000s, late 90s, probably even before that. And what's shifting is now we're, how do we manage attention in time? We all have the same amount of hours, minutes in a day. Um, but how do we manage our attention to that can dictate how we use that time. Right. And, and what you were mentioning in, in the presentation today is, is how much of this, how much of this is based on our awareness of it comes back to that word awareness and building up better habits to, to, to sort of almost retrain ourselves against the bad habits that we've had, right? right. That, that we're being reactive to all of these things, to all these stimuli, and we don't even realize that we're being reactive to it. And it's not something that we can just simply turn off or change who we are and how we work, but we have to make a, a conscious effort and build up new habits, yeah. right? And so is that part of this teaching? Is that part of how you guys go about um, helping companies? In the trainings, for sure, there are new strategies to approach emails different, to approach meetings different, and things you can implement. I would argue from knowing a lot about the science that I think we'd be surprised how well we could do if we just were aware. Like, we know how to do things correctly. It's just being hijacked by fear, by survival mechanisms, by all sorts of distractions that cause us to get messed up. We know how to make good decisions better than I think we do think we know how to do it. Yeah. So if you were to give like somebody who's listening right now, what would be one thing that you said, okay, as a business owner, short of hiring us to come in for a training exercise, like what's one thing that you could say, here's something meaningful that you could try out that might make a dent for you in your business? Yeah, I would have two, two small things that people can do. The one being focusing on what you want to do, and when a distraction happens, come back to what you want to do. Practicing that muscle is just like going to the gym. Every time you sit down and you say, I'm going to do this project or this email, and if anything happens, I'm, I acknowledge the distraction, and I come back to what I want to do, that alone can retrain your mind to build better focus. It's like practicing meditation uh, just throughout your day. The second part is often difficult and clashes with the other challenge of culture is spend three to five minutes before a meeting practicing together. And, and that alone will let everything outside of that meeting room go away. Because you know what it's like to go to a meetings. We come in there, everything that happened beforehand is suddenly going to come in. You know, someone pissed me off earlier on the phone. I come into a meeting. I'm mad now and I'm going to be limited because there is a layover from emotions. It doesn't just go away. We can't switch so easily. Subconsciously, things drift over all the time. Uh, we're primed to go into biases. You know? um, and so spending three to five minutes. Now, again, the biggest challenge, the other challenge I would say is culture. 
And that's the problem with a lot of these trainings is it can work at an isolated part of the workplace. Um, but if the culture doesn't support it, it's going to not, it's not going to have as much benefit as it could. Right. And, and the culture, as we all know, is driven by the leadership, right? And if it's not from the top down and not saying it has to be pushed, but if the leadership doesn't buy in and they don't communicate it and they don't get other leaders to buy in and the whole organization as a whole and buy-in doesn't mean everybody has to believe it, but everybody has to be rowing in the same direction. Right. right. And, and understand the value concept and the value proposition and be able to um, get everybody to, again, row in the same direction. You're going to have problems at some point. And it's not just like, I'm going to, now I'm going to like take culture and change it because of this. And I'm going to be able to, as a leader, suddenly make decisions that, that shift culture. Not so much, you know, culture uh, shifts, it creates over time, over a long period of time through one theory is ASA, which is attraction, selection, attrition. So leaders, when they start companies uh, or stakeholders or what have you, they'll attract certain people based off of the leader's values. And then they'll select out of those people based off their values. And then those who don't fit those values, they leave, attrition. And so over, over time, you have this method of only picking certain types of people, whether the leader knows it or not. It's not as much of a, a conscious choice sometimes, and that's hard to shift. It, it takes a, a slow amount of time to shift culture. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that from being in business for 28 years. It takes a long time sometimes. Definitely well worth it, though. So thinking of all of that, do you see, like, do you see there's a difference or do you see from an adoption rate, like large companies versus small businesses? Do you see different companies uh, more open to it or different types of leaders more open to it? Like how, what are you seeing out there in terms of that? Mm, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. That's some research that should be done that hasn't been done yet. Mm -hmm. And we're gathering the data to do that. Um, we just haven't prioritized that yet. Right. And uh, you, soon enough, we will be able to evaluate like differences between industry, between organizational size. Right. Yeah. Do you think that's more of uh, sort of like, you know, related to the early adoption curve, like more of the larger companies who have engagement issues or have the money to deal with uh, how they interact with staff and understand the value proposition of you know, retention versus hiring and what the true cost of retention right. is of somebody and, and, and all of those sorts of things that, that play into larger companies who are going to adopt this sooner over time and then it'll sort of trickle down to smaller companies? Or do you think more business owners are more in touch and, and more aware than ever in the past, more small business owners that maybe it'll go from the small up rather than the top down? Hmm. At first thought, I would say that small business owners probably are more likely to have cultures that support this type of work and they're and also but the money thing is it's difficult to have the funds to implement uh, a 10-week or five-week program the bigger companies they have the funds to implement it and they can experiment with what works right i would also say that they can experiment with they can do small experiments and that's what's helpful a, a facet of organizational development is if they want to shift culture, it's not unveil this huge initiative. It's okay. Here's a team of five. Let's do it with them for X weeks and see what happens. And a large company has the benefit 
of so many people that they can run these small experiments at low levels and then begin to adopt. So we do a lot of piloting with large organizations. We'll have a 10-week pilot program with whoever wants to join can join kind of attitude. And then if that works from our evaluations, you know, we measure psychological outcomes, opinions, behaviors, then we'll open it up to people. But I do see the theme of introducing it to any company. It's who wants to join? Volunteer. We're not going to force anybody to come. And then once people start to see benefit, even those who are the first early adopters, word gets out. And then those who were sort of skeptical might join. And I think those people are the best to have in a group. So how do you see this playing out in the future? I mean, do you see this as... This is a rather new concept, right, within the, the confines of how long businesses have existed, right? 500, 600, 700 years, whatever it is. Um, with mindfulness, with attention, with focus, with, you know, um, organizational behavior, all of these are rel- relatively new concepts from a business perspective. Um, we're just seeing more and more of this in the day-to-day of larger companies and and you know, what do you hope is the future for, for both just the concept and, and your involvement in it? Yeah, I think there's, there's two, right? It's like, what what is the future going to be and what do I hope the future is going to be? I think what the future will be is going to be a lot more e-learning. And that's where the industry is going is, okay, we don't have time to everyone sit in a room and be there for one hour and practice this or learn these concepts. But we can offer a digital offering of... Here's, here's the recording is going to happen at 2 p.m. Join or don't join, but you can always watch the recording later. And that's happening in the industry. I mean, right now, LinkedIn purchased that company, and they have a whole online learning center. Our organization is unveiling something as well. And people like e-learning. They can do it at their own pace. Doesn't that lose a little bit of, like, I would think mindfulness needs a connection, yep. needs inter- interaction, needs that, that personal touch. Wouldn't it lose some oomph, for lack of a better term, you know, the connection if, if you're learning on, I mean, I could see where it would spread faster, right? More people are being exposed to it, but are they getting as deep a meaning from it? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Because it's just harder to learn on e-learning at your own pace like that, not being in a room and practicing with people. So I think that it helps it superficially, but the, the values don't get ingrained as well. Where I hope it's going to go is and we're starting to see this a little bit leaders doing retreats and that's so foreign to us in in the west to go on retreat quote you know like to go off and not be spending time on email but every time that happens there's a new new way of looking at life and i think that over time leaders will start to see that going on retreat and practicing this it's like I'm training for a half marathon sort of exercise, not like I go to the gym for half an hour and then eat junk food the rest of the day. That's what could happen by doing mindfulness. It's like, oh, it's a Tylenol pill. I can just take this. I'll feel good. Stress me out more. Every meeting and I'm good. And then I'm good, right? Versus it's a shift in how you see the world. What if every time that I distract myself or escape into dopamine land is actually against my values? And that happens slowly over time. But like I said, I think where I hope to see it going is more retreat stuff, even if it's not like a 10-day thing, but like a day, 
a one day. So what are the, the results from businesses? You know, what are they seeing in terms of positive results for investing in mindfulness or mindfulness training or, you know, improvements in organizational behavior or focusing on, again, you know, the psychology of knowledge workers and, and helping people. Again, that, that concept that if, if 50% of the time that, that we're doing work, we're only focused on the work half the time, it, it just seems like, you know, what does engagement or improved engagement get? What do we get for that? Yeah. And what's, what's the value proposition? You know, because small business owners are always thinking about the ROI. What's the return? If I'm going to spend money on training, what am I going to get back for it? What does this mean? Right? So, what were some of the numbers that you shared with us earlier? So we're seeing increases in engagement, job satisfaction, work efficiency, how quickly and also efficiently uh, and, and quality of work that gets done, stress management, sleep quality. Now, these are things that we're measuring for our training program, but from research, we know that it's quite clear what's happening. I mean, ask somebody, what is the cost of someone not being at work due to stress or a stress-related illness. You know, that starts to add up. And you can start calculating the numbers. Okay, well, if we have this number for how much money we lose for paying someone to have paid time off and they're not there or whatnot, it starts to add up. And you can shift that number when people are still at work enjoying because they have a better work-life balance because their stress is manageable, not getting rid of stress, it's manageable. And I think it starts to add up. Now also from the clinical side of research and just the research journals, we do know that mindfulness helps us manage our priorities and our context. So at work, I'm at work, I'm not thinking about home life. When I'm at home, I'm at home, I'm not thinking about the work projects. and. That's so impactful when we can separate our minds to be with a loved one instead of be thinking about work. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is, is you know, nowadays it's a really hot topic is this, this I mean, the topic of work-life balance. And, and personally, I kind of, you know, I've, I've had a lot of discussions with a lot of different people about this and, and different people in different walks of life and different roles and different industries and businesses. I just, I kind of, I'm, I'm sort of a Gary V fan of if his view on work-life balance, which is there isn't any. You, you shouldn't have a line between your work and your life. Your life is whatever it is. You, you spend some time working. You spend some time with family. You spend some time doing activities, whatever it is, right? But there's no, well, either it's, you know, again, it's, it's not binary. It's not either I'm working or I have a life. Right. And I think that 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 word, that concept is almost propagating the wrong or incorrect or suboptimal view of of life in general. Right. Because you're, you're assuming that work is something I don't enjoy. If, if it's binary, there's work right, and there's yeah. life. Right. I guess it comes down to not generally do you have that work life balance line or, or separation, but rather what's your work-life integration like or harmony. And I think that comes down to if we go to the moment as our unit of analysis. So this moment right now is your mind where you want it to be. And if you're the kind of person who likes to create a separation, good. How do you want to do that even better? If you're the kind of person who likes to have work inter like 
all throughout the day, you're at work, you're at home, before you go to bed, check your emails. That If that's your personality type, good. Are you doing that the best that you want it to be? Mm-hmm. And I right. think that what it comes down to is how do you want the, your result? Right. And I think, I mean, what you said was great. I mean, I think I would love for the world to adopt it. I think it's it's way more work-life harmony than it is work-life balance, right? Because, again, that balance makes it seem like it's an either-or. It's a binary choice right. as opposed to, you know, sometimes you work a lot. Sometimes you do other activities a lot, right? Sometimes you have to stop this and go do that. The reality is there's never a balance. It's never equal, just like a marriage, right? Like they, they say if you go into a marriage uh, assuming that you're going to give 50% and you're going to get 50%, it's totally never going to work. The wrong way to look at it. The way to look at it is you want to give 100% no matter when. And if you're giving 100% and the other person's giving 100%, you're both going to win, mm-hmm. right? It's a win-win versus did I get my 50%? Did I not? Do I give my half, Right. Yeah, I, um, I did enough. I'm a good boy. Yeah, whatever that right. concept is. Well, but I've heard a good way of thinking about it also is a sprint mentality that you're doing a series of sprints. That sometimes you have one project in life that maybe work, and you're now you're focused on that for two weeks, and that's a big chunk of your time. And then maybe another chunk is um, doing something around sports. Maybe another time is going to colleges with your children and checking that. And so there's a series of sprints that take most of your time, and it's about the flow of that rather than a balance constantly. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think that's, again, you know, how do we get the rest of the world to get in line with this? (laughs) (laughs) Get them on your podcast. There you go. All right. Cool. So, um, yeah, the interesting, another interesting thing that you brought up was, um, stress, which a lot of people, you know, you say the word stress and people are stressed about the word stress, right. Without, you know, being overly redundant, but, you really brought to light something that was interesting uh, around the concept of the right amount of stress, right? And can you, you speak to that just for a second? I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, there's a famous study, the Yerkes-Dotson curve, it's called, and that's... You, you got all these studies in your in your tool belt. Those are great. <laughs> yeah, that man tool belt. <laughs> so the Yerkes-Dotson curve is that looking at how stress relates to performance. And people kind of romanticize not having stress. But the reality is... Without stress, we're bored. We don't like it. Having low stress, low performance. Think about like walking into an exam and you feel super relaxed, you're super fine. You're going to do poorly. You're not going to have the adrenaline to focus you in and narrow your attention onto a task. Now, if you're super stressed, cramming before an exam, your adrenaline's going to be pumping so much, your cortisol, you're not going to have the ability to you're going to have so much tunnel vision that you won't have the information available to you, the plethora of information to aid in problem solving. If you have the right amount of stress, then you're engaged properly. It also comes back to flow theory that if you have the right balance between stress and skill, that's where you want to be. So flow is the concept and it relates to this stress phenomenon. Flow is the concept that you lose yourself, you become totally immersed, you lose track of time, you're very creative, um, you feel one with the activity, surfing, guitar, you know, art, exercise, business, anything. And that all comes down to your skill level and your challenge. You can think of challenge as stress, right? Anytime that you're challenged to perform, you're feeling a little bit of stress. If you have too much challenge and it's outside of your wheelhouse of skill, you're mountain biking down a giant hill and you don't know how to bike, 
you're going to be very anxious. If you don't have any challenge and you're very skillful, you're going to be bored. But if you have the right amount of challenge or the right amount of skill, that's optimal engagement. And there's a little bit of a fallacy that people think they don't want stress, but it's you want it, the right amount. And that will depend day by day sometimes based off of your skill level um, or what opportunities you have. And so one thing to think about as a leader, how am I aware of what my followers need and how can I give them the appropriate challenging opportunity? That's interesting. That's always interesting is trying to balance that, especially as a leader is figuring out everybody's, everybody has different needs, right? And, and they have different goals and different aspirations and different communication styles. Being a good leader means you have to be really, really flexible and you have to flex to what your, your reports need or your employees need or your staff needs, right? As opposed to dictating. This is how you're going to work. You're, you're never going to optimize people's performance if you dictate. I mean, you have to be flexible as a leader and meld yourself to what they need. Um, so I think all of this is really, really interesting. Yeah, it's tough because the brain wants to treat everyone the same to save energy. Yet we need to see that everyone's different. And that was actually my thesis was, okay, understanding the unique needs of each person is a very important thing as a leader. But it's hard to when the brain has all these biases that it wants to put everyone in the same bucket and there's distractions galore that I don't even have time to look at other people to finish my own tasks, let alone. And I, I measured leaders on their ability to be mindful and their emotional intelligence. And then I asked their followers, hey, why don't you rate your leader? How often do they provide you unique support to you differently than others? It's a concept from the leadership literature called individualized consideration. Found out leaders who are more mindful are better able to be aware of other people's emotions and unique differences. Jason might need more challenge because I'm very bored, whereas Amy in the corner, she's overwhelmed by work, and so she needs more support to, to figure out how to up her skill level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, again, that comes back to awareness, attention. It could all come back to mindfulness, right? I mean, all of this stuff circles back into our own ability to be aware of what's going on around us, right? And channeling the right energy towards that. So I want to go in a slightly different direction. I know we're, we're, we're coming up on a hard stop here pretty soon. I know that you're, a, like me, productivity aficionado. I didn't want to use the word guru. Uh, connoisseur. Connoisseur of productivity. <laughs> it, it's great because we have we, we share some great conversations around this and, and, and productivity moments. It's really interesting because there aren't that, that many people out there in the world who uh, just enjoy like optimizing their own getting things done, yeah. as it were, right? I don't have a, a great way to put it, but, and it's interesting because I, I, I know your family and I know your brothers and I know their views on, on all of this. And it's, you know, we're a lot more similar than, than they are to us. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me like some of the things that you've done recently or some of the things that you've done over the years in terms of how do you manage your time? You know, you, one of the things you said earlier was like, you can't really manage time. You can only manage our focus and attention and prioritization of the things that we need to do. Uh, but you know, the easy way to say that is, well, I manage my time. Right. So share with us some of the things that you do around how yeah. you organize your day. How do you get things done? Man, there was one point where I was going full neurosis mode and like <laughs> it was great. literally tracking it was great. every task that I was doing. And I would put it in an Excel sheet and I would see, 
you know, how engaged was I to this one task that took me 13 minutes? It was glorious. So I've done a lot of different <laughs> strategies. And I think for me, I found a load of a sweet spot. It was from your help, actually, the planners and stuff. Um, I have an online task list that I use. I use the app called Things. There's tons of great ones out there, though. And I just store everything that I ever need to do in that system. And it's linked up from my computer to my phone. So if I have to do something on December 15th and it's due that date, then I'll put it a week ahead to plan out when do I do it. So I just kind of export things out of my mind. And then when I, pl I plan for the next day, so like tonight before I end the work day, I will set time aside to plan tomorrow by setting my task list, what I need to do, looking at my emails, and then I feel the sense of a little bit of hope and optimism that I know what to get done. I know what obstacles are going to be my way. I know some pathways to get rid of them or to get to solve the, the obstacles. And then uh, I will write out my task list in a planner uh, in the Michael Hyatt full focus planner. Who's going to hey, where, sponsor our from? podcast. <laughs> this is a new sponsor. Bob, uh, did you get that? We're going to have to talk to Michael Hyatt about uh, sponsorship. He'll come on soon. He'll so, be on the podcast soon. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And you offer that book, uh, the, the planner to me and it suggested, and, and it's been such a game changer to write down what I need to get done to see it on paper. Um, that's been the huge game changer. And also to separate what is the most important thing I need to do today. And then what are the things I want to do? And so that helps me a lot to start the day reviewing that because then I know I can zero in on, okay, here's my priorities. And that's kind of also the gauge of, of am I doing things well in my life? Because if I'm consistently not hitting my top three important things, something's going wrong. I'm not prioritizing well. You know, I'm eating too much Chipotle. I don't know what it is, but I got to figure it out. Right. So... I mean, this is, again, this is an interesting concept to me because I don't see a lot of people who proactively take control, as it were, of their time, of what they're doing. Um, personally, I did this um, a couple of years ago where I actively took control because I felt like at the end of the day, I kept looking back going, what the hell did I get done today? I know I was busy, got a lot of stuff done, but I didn't feel good about it. So the more I was able to take control, my mental health went up. Like, like you know, I may not have... I think I accomplished more, but in reality, it wasn't like hugely more, but I felt better about it and I was more organized. You had, a you had a benchmark right? of here's when you get done. Okay, I got this far from my benchmark. Right. Yeah, and I think that's helpful for micro tasks, like small tasks that need to be done as part of big projects and like breaking down, chunking down these big initiatives, these big projects are helpful for me, especially in my PhD work. And it can be overwhelming to have a huge paper to, to write over the course of four months and not know what's my progress like. So one thing that I've been doing that's kind of new is, and this works for me, and I think people are sometimes different when they're in different parts of their journey. For me right now, I need to feel good about like 1% gain. If I did a 1% gain in this big project, success. Because after, after many, many weeks, 1% adds up. And so something I've been playing with is lowering the bench, lowering the bar of what is success. And it sounds silly, but I think that having such a high bar of success keeps people from actually starting to do work. But if I knew I only had to do 1% today, it gets me going. And then once we're getting into it, we find our flow. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think tied into that, 
and tied into the mindfulness and just mental health concept. You said you're using an app called Things, right? And I use OneNote. Everything I do is in OneNote. You know, the thing about productivity and organization, all of that stuff ultimately is for the result, right? But at the same time, it is for our mental health. And and for me, you know, again, tying into that concept of can I acknowledge the distraction and go back to what I'm doing? It's significantly easier to do that if I know all the noise is organized. If I know I can come back to it and I know where it's at. If it's not organized and I'm just dealing with emails and emails never stop and it's just this constant barrage, you know, it's like the waves on the ocean. You're never going to stop them. Yeah. You're just going to one day just step back and just be overwhelmed and go, what the hell? I just can't keep up. Um, but if you know going in and, and put yourself in a good place that it's organized and everything's there, now let me prioritize and let me chunk it out and have a process around that, again, you're not going to get everything done. So how do you keep your mental health around that? And I think that's all around productivity and organization and how we go about doing what we're doing. I would ask you, though, how did you get on this track? How did you like become somebody who wanted to be organized, who wanted to look at optimizing productivity. I'm doing air quotes around optimizing productivity. But like, did everybody at Claremont do that? Did you see the successful people doing it and then unsuccessful people and you kind of learned, hey, I should start doing this? Like, how did how did that come to be something that, you know, you came to learn? It took me, you know, 20 plus years really to get it dialed into. I feel good about my approach now, but I'm curious, you know, at your age, I wish I I learned it back then. <laughs> I'm a pretty prototypical person who would not be doing mindfulness. I mean, I grew up on my computer playing Roller Coaster Tycoon for eight hours a day, drinking vanilla Coke and like eating chewy cookies. It was just, it's crazy how much I was distracting myself back then um, and how often I was addicted to video games and computer games and playing music and all this stuff. I think... Um, that ultimately led me to not be the student that I wanted to be. I was I always loved learning, but I wasn't great at it. And I think part of that was due to my inability uh, to get engaged. And so what I learned in undergrad was I started to make lists of things to do because that was the, kind of the first time that I needed to kind of rise to the occasion of doing work on my own pace. And so I started making licks, lists, more lists, more lists, and it was getting over it was getting crazy how many lists I'd make and I think I naturally was trying to figure out a way to organize what I wanted to do and in, and then I saw an immediate return on investment wow when I started to organize my thoughts on paper or out I got I was having a better time I was having more fun in life in general even mm -hmm. outside of work right right so that's that whole mental health approach, right? It's like solving that problem that you might not have even realized that you had or the cause and effect really wasn't there, right? I'm, I'm not as happy as I could be. And, and you start going down a road that you think, what's the cause of that? When sometimes it's just the organization around your life, which seems like a big thing, but you're still doing the same things, just sort of tracking it differently. I think I got lucky that I, I started to think, what can I do? to help me get more engaged. Like, how can I take responsibility? Like, what am I doing in my life that is that is um, influencing this? Is it my not making my bed in the morning? Could that possibly be impacting it? Maybe. I'm gonna start making my bed. Let's see if that makes a difference. It's just experimenting. I just started experimenting with everything. 
to see what could change to ultimately lead to some different result. I didn't know what it was, but I guess I got lucky that I didn't blame external reasons. Yeah, which is that's an easy thing to do. It's really, I mean, it seems like that's more and more, right? We, uh, these days, we're just talking about the lack of personal responsibility and how it's everybody else's fault, but the person's. Yeah, what if, right? what if the smallest thing of me opening my phone at whatever time in the morning that may impact mm-hmm. some grievance that I have later in the day? Maybe. Let me try an experiment. Right. The butterfly effect. Yeah. Right? I mean, you don't know what little thing. If, if I don't open my phone first thing when I wake up in the morning, will the rest of my day be completely different? Yeah. Who knows? And so that's why I just got fascinated with experimenting and doing like uh, there's a whole like area called quantified self is tracking one's behaviors and seeing if shifts in those small actions amount to a change. So it all kind of came out once with a Fitbit and I started doing Fitbit stuff and walks and all these different things. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, we've been talking for a while. I really appreciate your time. I mean, I think, you know, I'd love to talk more about some of the mindfulness stuff, but I'd also love to talk more about personal growth and some of the things that we've gone at this point. Um, But I think at this point, we're probably going to have to uh, call it a day. And thank you greatly for this stuff. I think it was great. I think our listeners hopefully will find this very beneficial. Um, I did personally. Um, we've got to wake up Bob here in the corner, who's our engineer. Just, you know, we're keeping him awake. No, just kidding. A lot of good stuff there. So just a couple last closing questions just to kind of tie things out. So what would you have told yourself, you know, your 18-year-old, your 17, your 16-year-old self that you wish you had told, you know, looking back? With your, you know, age-old wisdom of, of uh, 27, 28? 27, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I would have told myself to not try to do so much because it's all going to work out. If you just have, if you ease off the gas pedal a little bit, it's going to work out. I mean, to practice mindfulness, to go on a meditation retreat. Oh, my God, I did that at 18. Superhuman. Uh, that would that, be pretty wild. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think also to continue some of the art forms that I was doing at the time to like go dive deeper into them. Cause I think I had a lot of cool things that I was interested in. Like I was a pretty heavy guitar player and also doing ceramics. And I wish that I just like went a little deeper into them for, for the creative outlet, just for a just, creative outlet, just to see where that would have taken you. Not business. Yeah. Just pure creativity of just creating stuff. Cause I think uh, that, that that's a whole other facet that can aid all areas of life, right? I read this like uh, Tools of Titan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So there's a story in that book about Tim some director. Yeah. Yeah. Some director uh, was on Tim Ferriss' podcast and he talked about how when he's on set and he's come across a little bit of a creative issue, he'll go do another creative activity. He'll start painting on set or he'll even bring in a professional painter and, and have paint with people. It's like, oh, wow, like, that's right. Like I could be doing something to keep going. So I think complexifying, if that's a word. If that's a word. <laughs> one art form could lead to other areas too. Right. Uh, and also, I mean, I think what it showcases is when you, when you get a blockage in, in a certain area, having another outlet to try to get your brain to think differently, right, exactly. is, is huge, right? And, and especially when you're trying to problem solve or trying to create something different, it's how do we get our brain into a different space so that it can think differently? That's how we come up with our most creative solutions yeah. rather than just, I got to solve this problem right now and I'm limited to my thought process that I 
I've inherited. Even going for a experience. walk, this helps. And mindfulness, right. that's what it's basically trying to do is can you do that without any other stimuli? Cool. Well, Jason, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. So if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, how would, you know, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, you can go on my website, beckjason.com. I think it is. I actually have one. and Or Instagram, at jasonbeck.life. Some good videos some good there. Some good there. posts there. there. Yeah. Uh, LinkedIn? Are you LinkedIn. a LinkedIn guy? Yeah, LinkedIn, Jason okay. Beck. I think it. Uh, I think it's the LinkedIn is linkedin.com slash Beck. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, put cool. The note. You put in the notes. We'll put something. it in the meeting yeah. notes. Yeah, we'll have something there. <laughs> Uh, any parting advice for any of our business owner listeners, anything that, that you wish to share? Uh, I mean, above and beyond the stuff that, you know, the great nuggets you've already shared with us this has been awesome. Uh, but any one, one piece of advice or anything to think of? If people thought about how their attention changes and flows throughout the day, that it's a, just a different tool. That's it. You know, it, it's whether you agree or want to do mindfulness or not, that's fine. But just noticing how your attention works of the day can be a whole different game. Awesome. Awesome. So I think the key takeaway is the word attention, focus, yeah. awareness, right? Granola. Granola. <laughs> All right. Cool. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate this. And that was Jason Beck of Potential Project. With topics as varied as attention, focus, mindfulness, leadership, organizational behavior, and the psychology of business, just to name a few. I hope you found our conversation as interesting as I did. Thanks again to Jason for sharing all of this great info with our listeners. If you'd like to find out more about what Jason has to offer or want to connect with him, check out the show notes for more details. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. To learn more about this episode or hear previous episodes, check out the show notes at www.fpainc.com podcast. And if you like today's show, please do us a favor and share it with your friends. We'd really appreciate getting the word out there. And you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do give us a review. Again, we'd really appreciate that. You can also write to us at podcast at fpainc.com. And if you want to send us a tweet, our handle on Twitter is at fpainc. I'm Craig Pollock, and you've been listening to the FPA Business Before Technology podcast. And remember, with FPA, it's always about business before technology. Take care. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.